Welcome to the Seven Things EMS Podcast, a continuing education offering of Limmer Education. Seven Things EMS Podcast is designed to give you what you need to succeed in EMS. It's conversational, informational, and without the fluff. Another episode of Seven Things EMS, and this one uh, is going to be awesome. This is Seven Things That You Need to Know About Renal Failure and Kidney uh, Transplantation. My name is Dan Limmer, but more importantly, we have an expert in the room here for a number of reasons. I'm lucky to be uh, with Bill Young, an associate professor at Eastern Kentucky University, uh, someone who's been greatly involved in EMS on the board of the National Association of EMS Educators and a podcast person himself, but perhaps even more than all those accomplishments, Bill has had two uh, kidney transplants and has spent some time on dialysis. He can give us insights that I don't think anyone else can with this combination of EMS experience and uh, his his health uh, that we're here. So welcome, uh, Bill. I'm really thrilled to have you here. This is going to be a great show. Thank you, Dan. I'm I'm glad to to be with you. I uh, you know I look forward to uh, listening to more of your your series. I think it it will be very educational with all the topics that you've got planned. All right. Uh, part of our mantra here is to get into it. And uh, while I could chat with you forever, a couple of guys that have been around for a while, we're going to jump right into it with our seven things. So uh, I'm just thrilled the way you can put your experience in here. And as we discussed. We can start right now with your first point. Renal failure patients who are on dialysis never feel good. That's one reason why they can be such a challenging patient to deal with. And as we go into this, I don't take any of your thing, is that we, I think we take dialysis patients sometimes in our transfer trucks back and forth, and we, mm-hmm. we see a lot of things that don't always understand it, and why sometimes people in the middle of their between treatments um, are going to the hospital. I think you can clear this up for us. Yeah, that, that's a good point, Dan. You know, one of the things that it's important to understand uh, about renal failure patients who are currently on dialysis, and we've all been there. We, we've all done what, you know, we typically call the dialysis shuffle, take them in the morning, take them back home in the afternoon. And many times uh, these patients are, are rude. Uh, they're abrupt. Uh, sometimes they can border on being combative and, and they're, a lot of times they're just not easy patients to deal with. And the primary reason that that EMS and other medical professionals need to understand why that happens is that these patients never feel good. One of the things that's important to understand about dialysis is that it doesn't make you feel better after you've gone to dialysis. It just makes you feel less worse when it works correctly. Now, if there's a, a problem with the dialysis, uh, as I think we'll talk about a little bit later on, there's a, a big, big issue with, with them um, uh, potentially crashing, getting really sick, cardiac arrest because of electrolyte imbalances. But with, with dialysis patients, this is one of the things that they are, they are chronically tired. They're chronically, uh, especially your renal failure patients, are chronically thirsty because their nephrologists are always trying to minimize their intake of fluid. Uh, to, to keep them from going into heart failure. And uh, their foods have been, taken, have been taken away from them that they've always enjoyed. When I was on renal failure diet, 
I always like to joke that it was a really simple diet. If it tasted good, spit it out. And so it's one of those things of, you know, it's a very bland diet. It's a very salt-free diet. I grew up in the South. You know, we salt everything. We fry everything. And so with these patients, just a little bit of compassion and patience to go along with what we're having to do uh, with, with these folks, especially when we are transporting them early in the mornings. Uh, keep in mind that they've been dialysis-free for at least probably about 36 hours. Maybe if they've missed a dialysis, uh, they, they, uh, or especially if it's over a weekend, they dialyze on Friday. They don't go back until Monday. Their renal numbers are all going to be, be messed up. Their electrolytes are, are, are either going to be really, really high or really, really low, as well as the waste products that, that build up because they don't have kidneys that are able to filtrate them out. And so, again, be a little patient with these folks. If they don't want to talk, that's great. Let them rest. Just, you know, sit there. Make sure that, that the patient knows that you're available if, if they need anything. But understand that it's not inherent to them as a person, but most, more so it's a problem with the process of the dialysis. Uh, and, and again, like I said, dialysis does not make a person feel good. It's just different degrees of feeling bad. I think that uh, instead of charging by the mile of transport, I think this gives us the let's walk a mile in their shoes uh, concept. And I think that's important. Let's go to number two then. I think that okay. our concept here is to roll. Um, and that oh, you're talking about peritoneal dialysis. Patients who do peritoneal dialysis are always at risk of developing sepsis. Now, we do a lot of hemodialysis in this country. I would uh-huh. in Europe, they do more peritoneal dialysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we're seeing more of it here. Can you just briefly describe the difference between uh, hemo and peritoneal dialysis and then explain the sepsis for peritoneal? Yeah, absolutely. So the dialysis patient that we're going to be most uh, familiar with, the ones that we're we're going to transport, uh, are the um, hemodialysis patients. The, the ones that are going to go into the dialysis center, they're going to be hooked up onto a dialysis machine and depend upon the degree of renal failure that they'll have, they'll spend anywhere from three to six hours in that chair and their blood literally will be exchanged while they are there uh, taken out, goes through a, uh, a filter as well as within that filter, there are certain specialized chemicals that pull out certain electrolytes and add other electrolytes back in throughout that entire process. Again, that's the most common. The other thing that you that, that we I want to touch on here is that we're beginning to see more and more people who are doing hemodialysis at home. And that's going to be really important because let's say that the machine fails or um, in, in doing the insertion into their shunt, which we'll talk about in just, just a minute, uh, you could have a patient that become, becomes very unstable from a hemodynamic uh, perspective, either because of a metabolic reason or potentially because of a hypovolemic reason if their shunt gets torn or damaged uh, while they're setting themselves up or their caregiver is setting themselves up. You can't do it by yourself. Uh, you may actually respond to a residence where this dialysis is taking place. 
So again, hemodialysis is the most common that we're going to see. Peritoneal dialysis is actually what I like to call the kinder, gentler method of dialysis in the fact that with peritoneal dialysis, it allows the renal failure patient to have somewhat more of a normal lifestyle. So what happens? We, we know that within the abdominal cavity, uh, the, the front, particularly the front part of the abdominal cavity, is lined with the peritoneum. That is very, very vascular. And if we have anything that gets introduced into the peritoneal, uh, into the abdominal cavity where the peritoneum is, the peritoneum can absorb that very, very quickly. We, we have that concern anytime that we have a hollow organ injury in trauma spilling out intestinal contents, maybe a gallbladder or stomach spilling out the contents, and now our patient becomes septic. And that can happen very, very quickly. With peritoneal dialysis, what happens is that there is an indwelling catheter that is placed within the abdomen. And typically, dialysis is now the peritoneal dialysis is done overnight through a machine while your patient sleeps. And this is more like your body's normal type of filtration system that is taking place. With hemodialysis, you go in every two days for the most part, and your, your body is subjected to this rapid change with over, uh, over three to six hours, and that's got to last. So they, they lower the levels really, really quickly, and that's got to last for at least uh, 48 to maybe 72 hours uh, until their next dialysis situation. With peritoneal dialysis, it's done daily, and it's typically done at night. Your patient will come in. And this is an aseptic technique when they hook up to the, to the machine. They have to go in and they have to scrub their hands for about five minutes. So your, your hands have to be very, very clean. You put on a mask. And then this catheter that's in the uh, abdominal cavity now will be the passageway through which you hook up to the machine. And you have literally about five gallons of dialysis liquid that is introduced into your abdominal cavity while it's in there, it pulls out the waste products and then it also re returns any electrolytes that uh, may be typically lost during dialysis. And then it pulls that fluid back out. And so um, peritoneal dialysis is the, the machine that is used is called a cycler. So Basically, it goes and, and comes in, in cycles. This takes anywhere from six to eight hours. So, you, you know, you want to be able to, to, allow that to, to allow that to happen. Again, it has to be an aseptic technique because if you get any type of bacteria or viruses or, or anything around that, that opening of that, of that uh, dialysis catheter, that's going directly into the peritoneum to be absorbed by the body. We uh, transported, uh, well, it was a few years ago now, uh, a woman who on peritoneal dialysis um, had an infection, maybe slightly short of sepsis, but I'll never forget her holding on. And it's always, there's a Murphy's Law involved in things. It was a reserve ambulance. So mm -hmm. it hit the bumps. Every time oh, it yeah. hit a bump, she was in agony. Uh, because of that peritoneal involvement in that with the infection. Oh, it's it's really, really serious. It's incredibly painful. I can remember one time when I was working uh, down in Georgia and we were transferring a patient 
to Emory University, which is where I had my first transplant. And I woke up that morning and had kind of a twinge in my in my abdominal area. Didn't think anything about it. But as the day progressed and we were on our way down there with this uh, with this patient and, and luckily, you know, uh, uh, I think it was divine providence. We were going to the place of where my uh, my kidney transplant had taken place. By the time I got down there, I was septic and I was in just incredible, excruciating pain because uh, it hurts so bad. And literally, you're going to to feel every bump. And, and I couldn't unload the patient. Uh, my partner had to go in and get help first for the patient and then then for me. Wow. The second time that I had dialysis, it was I had sepsis so bad I was admitted to ICU. Or I'm say uh, 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 an infection, not not dialysis, but an infection during peritoneal dialysis. Uh, I was so sick that I, I told my wife goodbye because I thought I was was going to die. Found out later, my nephrologist thought that I was going to as well through the night. So again, the reason that I put this as an important thing in there is that most of the time, the only time you're going to be called for a patient with peritoneal dialysis would be in the incidence of sepsis that occurs when you've got an infection or potentially when you're dealing with a, a trauma patient with abdominal trauma. And you, you, you want to be aware of what that catheter is and why it is so important that we try to up our game and maintain a septic technique when we're taking care of the PD or the peritoneal dialysis patient who has abdominal trauma. Just, that's just just critical. You know, many times we say, well, we'll let the hospital treat the infection because we work in a dirty environment. But we want to try to minimize that bacteria entry into either the wound or through that catheter as much as possible because literally it can be life-threatening for your patient. All right. Um, that was awesome. Now, part of the seven-thing concept says that we... Um, can change things up a little bit. In this case, uh, you say, if you're not able to establish an IV or IO during cardiac arrest, there's nothing sacred about the dialysis shunt. Use it. You're, you're, you're a little bit of a sacred cow uh, <laughs> that, you're, that, you're, that you're putting up here. You certainly have walked the walk about this. Um, tell us why you say this and maybe any tips about how. If that's the case, yeah. obviously, we ask students to always follow their local protocols. Your mileage yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, uh, and, and I, 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 this is important to me because this is a discussion that you need to have with your agency as well as with your medical director. Obviously, um, you don't want to go against your local protocols, but it, it's much like when I was talking with my with my nephrologist when I was was on dialysis the first time wasn't wasn't doing hemodialysis. But I asked him the question about accessing uh, the, the shunt during a cardiac arrest. And at that point in time, you got to remember, I go back to the dark ages of EMS. So I've been doing this for a very long time. Um, we, we weren't using IOs. And so it was literally you either got a peripheral IV or an EJ or you got nothing. Okay. It's a little bit better, probably actually quite a bit better now that we're able to routinely access or to to set up and and do I/O. So this is probably not going to come into play, but we always prepare for prepare for the worst case scenario. And within this, and I, I realize that this is heresy that I'm throwing out there, and I can I can actually hear the villagers 
getting their pitchforks and their torches ready. But I go back to what my nephrologist said, and he looked at me and he said, Bill, during a cardiac arrest, are there degrees of dead? And I immediately knew exactly what he was saying. So this patient is, is, is you know, for, for all means and purposes, they're pulseless, they're abnic, they're dead. And if we don't do what we can to get them back, they're going to take a perfectly good functioning dialysis shunt to the grave with them. And so uh, this this led to a little bit of change within our own local protocols that, that were there. Now, accessing a dialysis shunt is a is a quite a bit different than uh, accessing a, a, another type of central line, a pick line, uh, or a subclavian line, or trying to do any type of a of a peripheral IV. First of all, one of the things you got to remember is that within a dialysis shunt, basically you have what's known as a fistula, and the fistula comes and and where the vein and the artery are typically grafted together. That doesn't mean that you've got commingling of uh, oxygenated and, and deoxygenated blood like we would see in a in a, a, a pediatric or a neonate patient, but they're grafted together so that you have a larger area for the dialysis nurse or technician to gain access. And so what you're going to want to make sure is that as you are filling that shunt, you are accessing the side that does not have the pulse, okay? So as you're, as you, again, you have artery that brings blood away from the body and you're going to feel a pulsation there in the, in the fistula. And then you have the vein that will not have it. Now, one of the best ways of beginning to look at this and to learn about this is at some point in time, you're going to have a dialysis patient that's going to become probably one of very few of your of your patients. Don't be afraid to ask him or her if you can, number one, look at the shunt. Number two, feel the shunt. You know, when we, many times we, we talk about uh, uh, the, the thrill that you, that you feel, that, that vibrating sensation that is, that is occurring during the shunt. But we never, we never experience it. We, we've never, we never know it. So when you're dealing with a dialysis patient, go ahead and begin looking and, and touching with their permission, of course, to begin to learn how to, if your agency decides to adjust their protocol to allow you to access shunts during cardiac arrest. And again, that's pending that you can't get a peripheral IV or an IO. Uh, to, to begin getting used to it now. You know, one of the things I stress to my, especially to my EMT students is that they need to be listening to heart tones and breath sounds on all patients. Why? Because when they hear something that's not normal, they may not know what it is, but they can point it out to the nurse or the physician when they get to the ER. We need to do the same thing with patients with shunts. We need to be, you know, don't be afraid of them. You're not going to break it. But if you begin assessing and learning about it on an actual renal failure patient that's going in for um, hemodialysis, it will be much less scary should you have to access that because you can't get an IO. All right. And again, we're talking about only during a code, during cardiac arrest. Only during a code. Yep. Right. yep. All right. So let's go as long as we're uh, talking about codes. Number four 
is if you have a dialysis patient uh, suffer cardiac arrest within 12 hours of the end of their last dialysis, they may need calcium, calcium chloride or calcium uh, gluconate. I don't, don't think anybody would argue the potential uh, electrolyte issues and things that we could find uh, in this. Uh, and what I've learned from talking to you is that this concept of dialysis is obviously life-saving, keeps people going, but it doesn't strike me as an exact process um, mm-hmm. as it was, as I did before I started talking to you. So tell us about that. Yeah, you, you make a really, really good point, Dan. I mean, you can go in for a dialysis session and come out of it, and it being one of those rare days where you feel fairly decent. Um, you may go in for a dialysis appointment and you will come out of it much like I shared with you earlier, uh, on three different occasions, I got transported to the, to the ER thinking that I was, was having a stroke during dialysis. And one of the things that we want to keep in mind is again, with dialysis, it's a, it's a, it's an inexact science. It's much, much better than what it was even 10 years ago, because, now patients are actually able to do dialysis at home, hemodialysis at home, and that gives them much better quality of life. Uh, they don't have to, to go to the dialysis center. They don't have to be transported. They don't have to, to move there and, and back. But one of the things that we're looking at here with, particularly with hemodialysis patient, is that we get these gradient curves and these gradient shunts that happen really, really quickly. If you think about it, we're removing, or the dialysis center is removing uh, about 48 hours worth of waste products, including elevated or depressed electrolytes in a matter of just a few hours, okay? And the body's not really set up for that. The other thing to keep in mind is that most dialysis patients don't just have renal failure. So they're going to come along with cardiac issues. Many of these patients have uh, renal failure because they're they're either type one or type two diabetics. Uh, in addition, we can see pulmonary issues that come in with these particular patients. When you make that massive movement of fluid as well as electrolytes, then that can have a negative impact upon the on the patient's heart. And so, one of the things that you want to consider about as far as administration of calcium, either calcium chloride or calcium gluconate, is two two things. Number one, if their calcium is too low, then giving the calcium uh, in whichever form that you decide to use that in will help to raise the calcium level and go back and to hopefully restore the inotropic action or that con- contractile force of the heart uh, to be able to, to uh, allow the patient to have mechanical action. It also comes into play as far as from the electrical side of the heart's function in the fact that if for whatever reason, now we have a patient that is hypokalemic, their their potassium is really, really high. Obviously, we know that high potassiums lead to sudden cardiac arrest. And so by the administration of this calcium, we begin to pull out the, the calcium from within the blood vessel uh, and and it, it enters back into the cell. Now, it's really pretty cool how that works because your calcium is still going to be high, okay? But now it's trapped within the individual cells that as it goes around, 
now it can be better excreted by what little renal function the patient will have. Now, keep in mind that all renal failure patients have some degree of renal function. So unless you were just simply to remove the the kidneys, your your patient is still going to have some type of filtration going on, maybe as low as 10%, but there's still some that's taking place there. And so it allows those kidneys to begin to excrete out the potassium to begin to lower it, hold it within the cell so that it's not going to the heart itself. And now hopefully we're able to restore both mechanical and electrical action within the heart. Wow. All right. Awesome. Now we're switching uh, gears a little bit. We've talked about uh, dialysis itself and we're going to go into trauma and then a little bit about transplants and renal failure. I think this Mm -hmm. is really well-rounded. So we're switching into a laceration of the shunt and bleeding. Mm -hmm. So you tell us if you have a hemodialysis patient who suffers a laceration of their shunt, you'll need to use a tourniquet to stop the bleeding. The pressure is too great for direct pressure. Yeah, so generally what you're looking at here is, remember, when we have a shunt, we have the fusion of both an artery and a vein that are connected together, okay? And again, I just want to, want to stress, they're still separate, but they're, they're, they're together. And that makes it easier for the, for the patient um, to, or for the dialysis uh, staff to be able to access that shunt to, to get their line started and for, uh, for the process to begin. They're separate, the but things, they're together. It sounds like they're separate, but they're together, you said. Separate, but it together. It sounds like yeah. a Facebook relationship status. <laughs> Facebook status for dialysis, separate, but together. That's right. Yeah, so and one of the things you got to keep in mind is that within these patients, if that shunt itself becomes lacerated, now you have both arterial and venous bleeding, okay? And we know that particularly when we have some type of an artery that is lacerated. And generally what we're looking at here, it's the radial artery that is coming down from the arm is typically where it is utilized. Sometimes patients will have um, a central line that will be put up into the chest, but those are normally going to be short-term access points until the patient can go to surgery to have a, have a shunt um, uh, or a fistula, both meaning the same thing, uh, installed. With these patients, when it if it gets lacerated, either from a problem with in the hemodialysis center or potentially from a home dialysis situation, or just simply from the patient going out and, and about their, their normal uh, day, one of the things you have to keep in mind is because of the pressure that is located within that within that fistula, uh, direct pressure is rarely, if ever, going to to stop bleeding. Obviously, you want to begin with direct pressure. That's typically the first thing that we're going to do while you get your tourniquet ready. Now, here's the thing: if you put a tourniquet on, you're probably going to destroy that fistula. But again, as I stress to my students, you got to treat what's going to kill your patient first, okay? There may be a possibility that you're going to destroy that fistula, all right? But if you don't stop the bleeding, we know that the patient is going going to become hemodynamically unstable and they're probably going to die. So again, 
the patient can have another shunt constructed. If for whatever reason he's been he or she's been on dialysis for a very long time and they have a shunt in one arm that has become unusable and now the laceration is in the other arm, these patients can always have a central line that is put in. It's not ideal, but it's always a backup. But if your patient bleeds to death because you're trying to stay trying to save the, the shunt, your patient's not going to not going to survive. And so go directly with your tourniquet, get that bleeding stopped, get your line started uh, as far as for uh, the appropriate use of, of fluid replacement. And this patient actually needs to go to probably bypass your local small hospital if you can, and go into a place of where there is a vascular surgeon available to go in, suture that up so that the bleeding stops, and then they can begin watching the patient and preparing the patient for an alternative form of dialysis because it's not going to be able to be used. I think um, what I like is when we teach realistically, um, I think that there are times in EMS when there are no good choices right? Oh, yeah. bleed, to, bleed to death or destroy the shunt. I mean, uh-huh. while the choice is clear, um, I don't know, even when I write books now, I try and put in reality um, that, you know, people say, well, I can't take the a blood pressure on the arm with the shunt. We don't want to put that constriction on. We've had that rule said to us a lot. You'd mm-hmm. think a tourniquet obviously is going to be um, very detrimental to the patient, but as is shock. Yeah. So we don't have great choices sometimes. No, we, we, we really don't. And, you know, we, within EMS, we are unfortunate and it's getting better. You know, one of the things that, that I'm looking forward to is, is within uh, ALS. I know that some agencies are beginning to use ISATs. Uh, we're going to introduce that into our program probably in the fall of using an ISAT. And one of the nice things about an ISTAT is you can check your patient's electrolytes in uh, amongst other things as well. And so, uh, again, this comes back with your patient that may be having some type of a, of a cardiac abnormality that you're seeing either on your rhythm strip or on your 12 lead. We get more information to be able to, to address that. With the shunt, it's literally, you know, what is the lesser of, of two evils? And obviously the lesser of two evils is let's keep this patient alive for their family and we can fix the shunt later. So it's a matter of triage. Right. And, you know, I think one of the things we've seen in our first five points here is that uh, someone on dialysis uh, is going to have some complications and some problems. Oh, absolutely. Throughout. Well, yep. now let's talk absolutely. about transplants. Yeah. The transplanted kidneys are placed in the front of the abdomen, usually the lower right quadrant. A second transplant will be the lower left quadrant, but the failed kidney remains in place with blood flow intact. So we have an abdominal trauma um, infection, or really any time we're doing a good abdominal exam, uh, we've got some serious changes in anatomy to look at. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and, and you know, many times people, when they think about transplants, they, they, they realize that the transplants are the kidneys under natural, normal circumstances. They're located in the retroperitoneal area towards the back. And so, you know, anytime that we have penetrating trauma to the to the back or the potential of penetrating trauma going from 
the uh, interior surface of the patient moving to the to the towards the posterior, we're always concerned about the laceration of the kidneys. With uh, transplants, that that doesn't happen. Uh, typically, what happens is that uh, in, in most people will have one kidney transplant. Uh, I've been blessed in, in the fact that I've had two donors uh, that have given me literally the gift of, of life again. And when you get the first transplant, it is going to be typically planted uh, or implanted on the right side in the right lower quadrant of the uh, abdomen. And they do that because the renal artery on the right side is longer and it, uh, it, it just, it, it's a matter of, of room, of being able to have more room for the artery to connect into the blood flow. If your patient has a second kidney transplant, such as, as I have had, they don't take out the one that's not working. Because remember, I said a while ago, even a failed transplant still has uh, some, or a failed kidney still has some filtration that's acting. And the other thing is that w- that's considered an unnecessary su- uh, surgery. So they'll implant it over on the right. Now, this brings up an interesting thing in the fact that most of the time when we're worried about abdominal trauma, we're worried about more of the upper quadrants where the liver and the, the spleen are as far as your solid organs. We don't necessarily have to have a whole lot of concern about a patient that doesn't have um, a kidney transplant because the kidneys are pretty well protected. Uh, you know, you have rib cage protection. They're located towards the back. You have muscles in the back that help to protect it. So it's rare for a, for a normal kidney to have some type of, of injury. It's not, not out, of the, out of the realm of possibilities. But now what we're going to do, think about this. We're taking those kidneys and we're taking them out of the protection and we're moving them to the very front of the abdomen. So literally, the only thing that is really between the outside and the inside of the patient is the patient's skin. So when you're palpating the patient and, and checking them for abdominal pain, uh, if they have a, uh, a, a an issue with um, uh, abdominal trauma, always palpate the lower quadrants. You should be able to fill the kidney there. It, it comes up very, very easily unless your patient has a lot of adipose tissue. So you'll be able to palpate it. The other thing to keep in mind is that the transplanted kidneys don't don't uh, receive pain receptacles because for all means and purposes, much like we see with transplanted hearts, when the vagus nerve is cut, their ability to sense pain has been removed because there's really no nerves that are going to them. The pain that will come will be if you have a lacerated kidney and now you're beginning to spill blood out, that's going to become, because it's get, as well as urine, that's going to be going and into contact with the peritoneum. And so that's where the pain is going to be. Flip side of that is going to be kidneys are considered solid organs. And so they are also going to bleed a lot. And so when you've got a kidney transplant patient, uh, e- even if you don't have any overt abdominal trauma, if there is trauma at all, watch them for signs of shock. Because again, depending upon their age and their condition, they can deteriorate really quickly because those kidneys can be lacerated because they have little to no protection in front of them. I have to tell you, I love all of your points. This might be the biggest 
aha for me. We don't see uh, a ton of uh, transplant patients in our practice, but should I have one in a, uh, a motor vehicle collision, it makes me think about seatbelts and things where oh, absolutely. you really look at that in a totally uh, different way. And that was fascinating. Well, we're down to number seven. It's kind of okay. it's flying here. I, I could I could do this for a long time. But, <laughs> you know, now we're talking generally about uh, about renal failure. You know, any any patient in crisis, um, in shock, uh, we're going to about to talk about burns. Um, we look at the renal um, function as a barometer. You know, mm-hmm. the body really fights to make sure the brain and the kidneys uh, get their blood in any uh, type of situation. And when that doesn't work, um, really not only is that a crisis for the body, but like I said, it's a barometer. You know, mm-hmm. when you get somebody to the hospital, they're looking to look at the overall patient status, and that's a big part of it. Now we're talking about patient with severe burns and you're concerned about renal failure from the passage of proteins uh, through the nephrons by using dopamine, a low dose of dopamine, 0.5 to 1 uh, mics uh, per kilo per minute, will dilate the renal artery and may provide enough blood flow to keep your patient from renal failure and ultimately dialysis. Now, before I hand this over to you, I just love where EMS is going, that we put this level of thinking out there. You know, we're embracing, you know, the advanced burn life support a little bit more. Mm -hmm. We're taking the uh, Parkland and saying, well, we have kind of modified that. I mean, there's so much, uh, so much coming into uh, EMS, but anything you want to throw in about renal failure, we have this, I think it's fascinating, but even generally about renal failure, how it fits in the, in the human physiology, I think it'd be a great finish for us. Yeah, so, you know, just to do a little bit on the pathophysiology of, of burns within the human patient, one of the, the big issues that, that we have uh, with a, a patient that has serious burns is that the cells themselves, obviously when you have a full thickness burn, the cells are completely destroyed, they're gone. But you also have that, what's known as the zone of stasis. So you kind of have decreasing uh, levels of severity of burns as you're moving uh, farther away from from where the the most heat has been applied. What happens with muscle cells, and muscle cells are primarily made up of, of protein, is that those cells now begin to break down and they release their contents. So two things happen. Number one, when we release the cells, uh, when the muscle or the cell wall breaks down and the contents are released, those become very poisonous for your patient. But as the infomercial says, wait, there's more. We look at this and we see this protein that now becomes just like a big blob of protein that begins to kind of like a a snowball that uh, coalesces and begins to become more like an avalanche. And it gets larger and larger and larger. And as that goes into the kidney, there's two things that can happen. Number one, in the very early stages, it can begin to clog up the nephrons. Now, the nephrons are the working units of the kidneys. That's where filtration takes place, all right? So when we plug up the filter, the filter doesn't work anymore, okay? It's just like your air conditioning filter in your house. I'm sure you're very familiar with this, Dan, being in, in Texas. You keep your filters clean because dirty filter means heat and humidity, okay? And so the same thing with a, with a kidney. 
A dirty filter means no filtration that is happening. Now, the second thing that happens here is that it begins to occlude the uh, the renal artery. Now, we in in all of our pharmacology classes, we we know that typically what we're looking at for a normal dose of dopamine is two to twenty mics per kilogram per minute. And we also share with okay, be really careful because if you give less than that, we have a paradoxical type of action of where it causes vasodilation, and by giving a low dose of dopamine, blood pressure falls. But we can use that, and again, I'm going to stress to you, like I did before, you got to follow your own local protocols, have this discussion with your medical director, but if you have a, a patient that has serious burns, or potentially even if you've got a patient that is suffering from rhabdomyolysis, same situation works here is if you give a really, really low dose, again, as, as, as Dan shared with us, we're looking at basically about a, a half to one mic per kilogram per minute, that causes that renal artery now to begin to dilate, okay? And as it dilates, it allows more blood to come in, and two things happen. Number one is it begins to move the protein out of the kidney, and number two, the, the protein that remains now begins to get diluted. And so, with these patients with really severe burns, they're going to go on to dialysis temporarily. You get them to the trauma center, you get them to the burn center, they're going to put a subclavian in, they're going to put a pick line in, some type of central line, and they're going to begin to dialyze the patient very, very quickly. But what we do at the scene also will help to minimize the amount of damage that is done uh, so that this patient will only be on dialysis for a very short period of time rather than, than that being a, a lifetime or until the patient can uh, qualify for a, for a kidney transplant if they ever can because of the severity of their burn. Well, it really strikes me that, um, again, like I said, our ability to think and apply uh, an EMS and, and, and do good, uh, the things that we teach is fascinating. Of course, people have to use their local uh, protocols appropriately. And it also strikes me that um, this is something that probably would have been a critical care thinking sometime before. Now we Mm -hmm. have the ability to do this. And I think especially in some of our rural environments where we have longer transport times, this really can make a difference. I think that's really spectacular. So what I do at the end of these sessions is I put people just slightly on the spot and I say, What's your parting shot? What's the thing that you would end this with? You know, that people remember what they hear in the beginning and the end, primacy and recency. So now mm-hmm. we have a chance for you just to say um, the, the last thing. What would you, uh, as someone who's been through dialysis, who's been through transplantation, uh, has an understanding of this uh, so intrinsically, um, what's your parting shot? What's your last word to people that are listening to this episode? So, you know, Dan, we, we've, we've covered seven, seven different things to know about renal failure and transplantation. Some of them have been, like you said, in, in the past would have been primarily uh, covered in some type of a, a critical care course. Probably the thing that I want to share most with, with people that are listening to this and people who are actively taking care of these patients goes all the way back to item number one, all right? We live in a world today where we're abrupt with people. We are uh, curt with people. Uh, you know, we, if they don't move fast enough, we get irritated with them. 
And so I, I want to challenge uh, my EMS colleagues to understand the why behind why your patient can often be such a pain to deal with. Uh, again, they never feel good. It's just different degrees of, of feeling bad. The clinical aspects of this, you know, we've talked about several of them. Those are pretty easy to grasp, okay? But it takes a special person who is able to look at a renal failure patient and and say, okay, maybe I don't understand what you're going through, but I can empathize with you. And I, I've experienced that through my entire uh, episodes with two of them. You know, my, my wife, incredibly patient and empathetic. My boss down in, in Georgia, as well as my boss here at, at EKU, very empathetic. I, you know, particularly when I was, was uh, on renal failure, I was afraid I was going to lose my job. My boss came up to my, my, uh, bed, uh, my, my, my bedroom, the hospital room, and he said, this is just part of doing business. He said, your job will be there for as long as you want. And so little things that we would do to just kind of show empathy and patience with these patients is probably the most important thing because that's not just good public relations. That's the start of good medicine. You know, one of the things you said is uh, if you find a patient while you're giving that empathy and that good care, I would say then to also take the time to learn. If you connect with someone and you're talking to them and you gotta got some time in the back of the truck and you can ask about the shunt or palpate oh, the shunt or, or learn from the patients, that's actually a way of connection. I think sometimes we're hesitant to ask when interest uh, actually sparks that conversation that you want. That empathy, that interest, that that time we spend together, uh, I think, can be meaningful for both. Yeah, absolutely. Don't be afraid to ask your patient. You know, especially if you're working, even if you work within a large system and you're you're assigned to a, a particular district, you're going to get. If you're transporting these patients, you're going to get to know these patients at whatever level you want, and and so. Ask them, you know, uh, you know, ask them about their diet. Ask them about the shunt. I, like I shared earlier, ask them if you can see it, if you can can palpate it. Most of the time, especially if you're on your way home from dialysis, the patients will feel better. They'll be more than happy to, to share their experiences with you. And we can learn good medicine and be good humans by doing that. I don't think I could wrap it up uh, any better. That was that was well done. Really, the experience and and kidneys and EMS and podcasting all came together there. And our 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 listeners uh, have an hour uh, of really really valuable CE. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. All right, and this is the end of another Seven Things EMS podcast. We're honored to have uh, Dr. Bill Young from Eastern Kentucky University share his experience uh, with us. And uh, please come back for the next episode. You all take care and be well. Thank you for listening to another Limer Education Continuing Education Podcast. For more podcasts that are relevant to your practice of EMS, limereducation.com slash seven things.